Hi, James. Ben, how are you? I'm sorry. I'm apologetic. Last week, we did not have a podcast because I just did not feel ready to podcast. It was a complete absence of powering through. It was anti-powering through. I have fully killed and buried the powering through idea, and I take full responsibility. Yep. Stop apologizing. It is fine. Everybody has weeks like that. I think what matters much more is we are here right now. We are, and we are talking about something that, frankly... I think it's a huge deal. I think it's a massive deal, that being the U.S. and China trade war. I think we're going to start with a sort of a narrow perspective about what's going on, but then back out because I think there's much bigger things going on here that are important and worth getting into. And it's going to be one of those episodes that I really believe, you know, we jump ahead 30, 40 years. This is going to be one of the things that we look back at and it really mattered. And, you know, I've been writing about it a fair bit in the Daily Update in particular for several years now. I think right after Trump was elected, I said this is going to be sort of a big deal. But this is the first sort of weekly article I've done about it. And I think what I hope we get into is I think this is something that's bigger than Trump. It's something that goes back for quite a while. Yeah, I think tech's on the pointy end of it too. I think in terms of your assessment about like when people look back, the tech eating the world and this are going to be the two big things they look at. I 100% agree with you. I'm looking forward to getting into it. It's probably going to involve us criticizing some other governments that are not our own. But I think I feel okay with that, given in the last little while I've been criticizing the Australian government. I think you've actually been joining me. And I think that's probably true for both of us of the American government too. So this isn't medicine. (laughs) Yeah, to say the least. Yeah, this isn't medicine we wouldn't dish out to ourselves. We also criticize the EU too, don't forget. Yeah, right. So- you know what? It is what it is. I understand what you're getting at. And I think this is a article and a podcast that has made me nervous for a long time just because it's fun. We did a podcast a few weeks ago about Disney, right? And their TV strategy. And we talked about all oh, how much fun that was. And it's fun because there's lots of stuff going on. There's corporate strategy. There's movies. There's superheroes. And I'm not just talking about Bob Iger. You know, there's all sorts of things going on that are compelling. And not just that, but when the conversation is over, we can move on to other things, right? And we could disagree and that's fine. It's just a different view on stuff that's going on. What is so consequential about what's happening now, I think drives to why it's also so challenging to sort of get into, because there is some aspect of we are talking about country versus country. We're talking about culture versus culture. We're talking about value systems versus value systems. And when you get into that level, there is not really any debate. It's not even drawing lines. It's exposing lines that sort of fundamentally exist. And that's a sort of very uncomfortable place to be. So I do think it is fair to note that to your point, yes, we criticize governments all over the place. We're also Westerners. You're from Australia. I'm from the US. I'm living in Taiwan. I don't think that impacts, but certainly the specter of China is something that is not far from the mind ever. So I guess what I would get to is I'm not going to apologize. We're going to do our best to talk about what's going on here, our point of view on it, and acknowledge that's where we're coming from with this. And I think we should get into it. One more thing before we begin. I think it's interesting why tech people find this topic so hard. And I think underlying a lot of tech's philosophy is like this utopian future where everyone's connected. And I think this conversation is going to challenge that just a little bit. 
you jump to the conclusion. So keep that in mind. I think this question of this push and pull versus this idea of the world being one place and everything being interconnected, which is so much the dream of technology, really being fundamentally challenged, which I think gets at this debate. And I think maybe this better frames where I think we're going to go. It's almost less about the U.S. versus China, at least from our perspective. And we're within the Western sphere debating what is happening here and what does that mean sort of going forward. That's maybe a better place to think about where our attention is focused. We were talking about this. We were planning this podcast and it's like, oh, we have certain views and like we're not going to convince someone in China about their views. I think this is more an intra-West sort of debate. And so we say that sort of full disclosure. One, it's inherent because we are Westerners, but also, you know, we start out recognizing that there's probably going to be a different view of stuff that we say from China. And that's fine. It's just the reality of the situation. Yes. I mean, conflated by the fact. I like that framing. It's the Western version of the debate. It's easy to lose sight of that fact because it's coming to bear in light of a disagreement that's happening between two countries. But I absolutely like the framing. So let's start on a narrow level. And I actually want to start last year because I think it's a useful way to get sort of the technical details out of the way about what's happening. It's easy to get confused. And last year, the U.S. placed ZTE on this, uh, I think it's called the entities list. I don't, I don't have it in front of me. But basically, it was devastating for the company. Like They could have gone out of business, and they only didn't because of a deal that Trump made with Xi Jinping, the Chinese president. But the particulars of how that works, I think, are worth spelling out. Because people ask, how can the U.S. government tell a Chinese company what to do? And in this case, the issue was ZTE selling to North Korea and Iran, which are under U.S. And the truth is they can't. Like what's happening here is the U.S. isn't telling ZT what they can or cannot do. What the U.S. can do is they can tell U.S. companies what they can or cannot do, which, you know, makes sense. And in this particular case, ZTE buys components from U.S. companies, all sorts of ones, and then manufactures devices and then sells those on to North Korea and Iran. And basically that means that U.S. components are being sold in violation of sanctions. And so what the U.S. government can do and did in that case, although again, later wrote it back, was they can tell U.S. companies to stop selling to ZTE or specifically you have to get a special license to sell to ZTE. But because so many U.S. components, particularly high-end components, are sort of critical to all sort of electronic infrastructure, you know, people think about, oh, the iPhone's made in China, like China's technology would be amazing. Actually, if you look at the total cost of an iPhone, of the parts, like less than $10 is actually sourced from China and the largest is from the U.S. And I think the other big ones are are uh, Taiwan, Japan, and South Korea, where all the high-end value components, the ones that are sort of irreplaceable, which being irreplaceable and being highly differentiated, they can charge much higher prices than just sort of labor and putting stuff together. They do not come from China. They are imported into China, then they are assembled into final products, and then they are sent out. So just to do this big overview, sort of to understand what happened to Huawei was basically they got placed on the same list. And that means that U.S. companies can no longer supply Huawei. And that was component companies, chip manufacturers, It was Google saying they would have to end their Android partnership. This is for the Google version of Android. Obviously, the open source version is still available. I'm kind of rambling here, but I just kind of get the details all the way. Huawei sells phones in China. They sell phones internationally. The phones in China would not be affected by this as far as Android goes, because all the phones in China use open source Android that has Chinese services fully baked in, has their own app stores, all that sort of thing. Where it would matter is outside of China, where basically you have to have the Google Play Store if you're going to be a successful Android OEM. And a lot 
along with all the other Google services like maps and mail and all those sorts of things. Again, it's just an important distinction to understand. They also lost access to Arm, which is a British company, but again, with tons of sort of U.S. technology inherent in it. Did you know that Apple is a co-founder of Arm, by the way? I actually had no idea about that until you told me earlier on. Yeah, I don't think that's why that they're involved in this, but it's kind of an interesting factoid that not all people know. Anyhow, so basically they're in big trouble. There was a waiver for U.S. rural broadband providers, which use Huawei equipment because it's generally cheaper to sort of get their things serviced and for handsets to get updates. So Google actually has now continued the relationship, at least for now, under this waiver, which is a 90-day waiver. But if this doesn't change, Huawei's business is in massive trouble. Like literally the company could go out of business, not just their handsets, but also all their communications equipment, which again, heavily rely on U.S. components. Yeah, I mean, like all those things are pretty foundational, but like ARM chips are just everywhere, right? You take out just that one plank, it's like a game of Jenga and you're pulling the thing out at the bottom, like you lose the ability to do so much. Yeah, in this case, Huawei does make their own chips, and obviously they're based on their ARM design. They are sort of bog-standard ARM designs. Like, they take the ARM version, and then they add on, like, the radios, the different things to make the system on a chip. It's not like Apple, where Apple has an ARM architecture license, and they completely, like, sort of have made their own version of a chip. And so the implication is that Huawei can keep making the chips that they've made, but, you know, they're not going to get access to sort of the designs for new ones on those lines. But it's also stuff like communications equipment requires lasers, and high-end lasers and the sort of mirrors that are used in them, dominated by the U.S. Lots of chip processing capabilities, particularly when it comes to analog chips, dominated by the U.S. I'm not sure how fully appreciated and understood this is, just how large advantage the U.S. still has when it comes to sort of super high-end technology, but it's significant. And that means that without U.S. components, you can't have a functioning tech company. Right. It's significant, but like it's closing, right? It's like every year China gets a little bit closer. So if you are going to play this as a tactic, you would certainly consider doing it now because the longer you wait, the less the leverage. Yeah. And, you know, to be clear, the justification here is national security. And this is not a invention of the Trump administration. The U.S. has been concerned about Huawei and national security for many, many, many years. Like, So this is a bipartisan sort of issue. And I think it's easy to lose sight of because of who's conducting this trade war. I think there's a lot of opinions that are formed before there's even sort of an encountering of any of the facts. And I think that's unfortunate, particularly in this case, because again, you can dispute the facts or think that something's wrong, but it's not that Trump is making this stuff up. Like this has been a concern for a very long time. Uh, there's a question about Huawei's founding, about its ownership, it being very closely linked to the PLA, the People's Liberation Army. The fact that Huawei has been implicated in multiple cases of sort of corporate espionage, questions about do their products have back doors. And not just that, but I think there's a bigger picture where how could this not be a national security question? We're talking about the core infrastructure that communication runs on. And it's one of those things where even if there wasn't any evidence, and I think there probably is evidence, but even if there wasn't any evidence, it's such an integral piece of sort of the way the world works. I think it'd be foolhardy to sort of not be super concerned about it. Yes, I 100% agree. 
I think your point around how foundational communications is to a society is a really important point. And somehow I feel a lot more comfortable if that foundational technology is coming out of a company like Ericsson, for example, as opposed to Huawei. The starting place, the principles of what they're operating in is so fundamentally different. Well, you know what? And there's an easy way to jump in for the criticism you there and say like, oh, you just don't like, you don't like China. You're anti-China. And I think that misses the point. That's certainly a way to interpret that. But I think what you're getting at is something that we're going to get into in this podcast. I think it's super foundational is for all our differences, generally speaking, Europe and the United States share a common view of the world and approach to the world. And if you play out a million things that might, like the million scenarios, what might happen in the world, the number of scenarios where the U.S and Sweden are on the same side of a dispute is very high, right? It's very likely that that would be the case. But if you play out what might happen in the future and how many scenarios is the US and China on the same side? Actually, you could play out a bunch of scenarios where they're on different sides. And this isn't an issue of saying China bad, Finland good, Finland bad, whatever it is. It's more a matter of what you're talking about critical infrastructure. And if critical infrastructure is in play, do you want that infrastructure controlled by someone that when the crap hits the fan is likely to be on your side is likely to be on the other side? And again, this is not warmongering or hoping that something happens. It's just prudent. Like you have to think about what might happen. No one wants there to be any sort of dispute or any sort of war. But then again, maybe this is where living in Taiwan makes this very real to me. I can certainly see scenarios where there is a dispute between the U.S. and China. And not to say that China or Huawei is doing anything bad. We're not the CAA. We're not NSA. We don't know what's going on. But if you think about just sheer prudency, given the importance of this infrastructure, you know, I can understand from a big picture why there's suspicions. Now, to be clear, it's not A to B as far as this ban coming down. The reality is the U.S. doesn't really buy Huawei equipment at all. Like I mentioned, small rural telecommunications providers do generally because it's cheaper and you know they're very pressed as it is. The big four, being AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile, and Sprint, don't buy any equipment from Huawei. The U.S. government does not generally allow buying sort of equipment. They've pressured them to not even carry Huawei phones. So the U.S. has certainly taken this sort of approach that I'm articulating right now. Again, like this is so hard to talk about because it's almost like there isn't a question of whether this is right or wrong. It's a very pragmatic view of the situation. You can understand why the U.S. is approaching this way. It's like a fact of life. That's what's going on. Now, does that apply to this specific case? Does this justify this sort of move against Huawei? Well, that's a different question. Hmm. Well, I mean, I, I feel like it's almost a framing in terms of risk management, but I think there's another aspect to this, which is really interesting, which is like, it's all of a sudden being called a trade war, but I feel like in so much as this is a trade war, the first shots haven't been fired in the last couple of weeks or in the last year. It's almost like we've been at war for a very long time. It's just only now one side is starting to, for want of a better term, fighting back. I hate to leave that point of hallway sort of unresolved, but there is a question like, is this a trade war tactic? Is this actually a genuine national security concern? But I think you're right to move on because it, it kind of doesn't matter at this point. The U.S. has fired this bullet, to use the term, and it's not going to be unfired. So even if this ends up being undone like ZT, the fact that this happened and the fact that there is even the risk of so much more to sort of go down – 
is going to change, I think, the way that executives on both sides think about this problem. And you're right. Like, this is something that's been going on. And from a narrow tech perspective, the fact of the matter is that several of the most valuable U.S. tech companies are completely banned from competing in China. I mean, it's so funny. Like, can we call a spade a spade? Yes, this is bad news for Huawei. It's also bad news for Facebook that they can't compete in China. It's bad news for Google that they can't compete in China. It's bad news for Twitter. It's bad news for Dropbox. It's bad news for whatever service that entails any sort of sharing or communication is generally bad in China. And this isn't to say that tit for tat is justified, but, you know, the idea of game theory is an interesting one. You know, the optimal strategy in a sort of prisoner's dilemma game is a strategy called tit for tat, where basically you do what your opponent does. And if they cheat, then you cheat. And if they cooperate, then you cooperate. And there's been tons of tests done about this. And that's the optimal strategy. Inherent in that, though, is what is not an optimal strategy is, you know, one side cheats and you cooperate again and again and again. But that is, I think, to an extent where it has been in technology. And I think it's just hard to have this conversation about what's happening now. Look at what's happening to Huawei without sort of just pointing out the fact that there's been stuff going on for a while now. 100%. And even if you're not one of the tech companies that's outright banned, the extent to which you want to operate in China and the rules under which you are forced to operate, and you compare that to when Chinese companies operate in the West. Now, of course, there are going to be times where specific organizations or companies are prevented from operating in a specific industry for national security reasons, so on and so forth. But that is very different from a wholesale, like the extent to which there is an expectation of technology transfer. If you're a foreign company coming into China, the only way you can do it is to share all the IP with China. Now, that is definitely not the way that it operates. If you want to invest in America, there's this forced transfer of some valuable asset to an American company company in order for you to be able to operate. Like that is not the rules of the road when it comes to the West. Now, I think you've framed it in terms of game theory. I frame it in terms of trade. Like you want fair and free trade, you do it such that it's reciprocity. Like, okay, if you want to put a 10% tariff there or this requirement there or that requirement there, then we are going to do the same thing. And for the longest period of time, this has been very lopsided. Now, I will actually come a bit to China's defense here. And I think if you back up sort of broadly, one of my favorite sort of uh, small stories is when Charles Dickens came to America and he was greeted by rapturous crowds and everyone loved him. It was amazing. And then quickly, the whole thing turned sour. Part of it is he thought that Americans were just these terribly rude and pigs that just made a mess of everything and were had no manners and all that sort of stuff. Part of it was that the reason why he had all those rapturous crowds greeting his arrival is because everyone was reading pirated copies of his work. And then he started to try to campaign that the U.S. should have its own copyright law because it'd be good for U.S. authors. And then the U.S. just got so mad at him saying, like, you're being a big baby body. You're trying to just get more money from us, blah, blah, blah. And the whole thing sort of spiraled out of control. It's kind of a funny episode. But there's an aspect of not just for in terms of copyright, but you go back to the Industrial Revolution, like which very very much started in England. And a lot of the key technology was developed there. And it was straight up stolen by the US. <laughs> and like they were not paying sort of IP fees. They were not paying licensing fees to the inventors in England to build out the factories and manufacturing in the US. And there's two parts to that. One, the US hands are hardly clean if you look at it from a historical perspective. But two, if you back up from sort of a broad sort of humanity perspective, it's not the worst thing in the world. Like having development, having technology spread generally is a positive. And I think you noted this earlier, but it's 
absolutely worth repeating, the greatest sort of breakthrough in human welfare in basically all of history has been what's happened in China over the last 30 years. And the fact that, you know, literally hundreds of millions of people have been lifted out of abject poverty. And is it great working in a Foxconn factory? No, it's tougher than what we do, that's for sure. But it's sure a lot better than what was going on before. And this is the case up and down China. And to the extent that some of that came from lifting IP or came from forced technology transfer or came from mercantilism and protectionism, like it's important to keep in mind that there was a lot of good that came out of that as well. And it's good that that is not that far in the U.S.'s past either. Yes, 100%. I totally agree. And I think there's going to be a broader conversation that we have further on in this podcast around the importance of principles and why it's so important to be principled in instances like this or when it comes to big debates like this. Because if you're not principled, then you have less of an argument to make. I think the extent to which America has like over-indexed on IP now that it's in the leading position and the extent to which it is handed over the keys to the kingdom, to the companies that benefit the most from it, I think is a bit of a stain on the country and a bit of a stain in terms of like the continued innovation, like the way that the patent systems unfolded. And I mean, like I've spoken very highly of Bob Iger, but what Disney's done with copyright and the extent to which it's continued to be lengthened beyond the creating a valuable incentive for new producers to come along and create content, I think that's terrible and like it should be wound back. That being said, like I'm not mounting the argument that piracy, etc., is bad or it's different. We're not having this conversation about India or in Thailand where perhaps some of these things are happening, where there's pirated software floating around, like the extent to which this is a large market that's developed incredibly fast and they feel like they are leveraging that large market and using it in ways beyond just copying Dickens. Like it feels like something different is going on here. Well, frankly, again, to sort of take the Chinese perspective, it should be different. We are talking about the two largest and most powerful countries in the world. We're in the realm of international relations here. And the number one rule of international relations is that the most powerful countries get to make the rules. And and I think that it's very easy, particularly on this technology transfer point and the question of IP, this is the easiest place to fall into a very US-centric sort of mindset and just sort of assume that intellectual protection is a good thing or just assume that it's unfair that they take IP when at the end of the day, you know, who's deciding it's unfair? Who is imposing the rules here? Like there is no one to impose rules on the U.S. and China at the end of the day. That's why it gets down to values. That's why it is such a fundamental sort of conflict, because it is a conflict not just about those sorts of things. It's a conflict about power. And, you know, from a Chinese perspective, feeling like you know, we are a developing country. People are being raised out of poverty. We need to keep growing. And by the way, we feel you held us down for a long time. And why are you going to walk in here and lecture us about your fancy pants IP rules? And by the way, we're going to have IP rules. We'll get there. And by the way, it's gotten much better in China over the last few years as far as having their own sort of IP system. But, you know, chill out. We will get there when we want to get there. And again, I think this is the one spot in particular where it's really easy to forget that you know, we're coming at this as Westerners and it's not just understandable. I think it's justifiable that China does not. Okay. 100% fair. I think even framing it just as a case of IP is 
too narrow, though. When Western companies operate in China, there are a different set of rules that they operate under. And it's hard to put your finger on it, but like the extent to which it's not a formal rule of law, but it's relationship driven. And the extent to which that is then used as leverage to benefit Chinese companies versus Western companies coming in. And like in the broader context of your point around, yes, this is international relations and might is right. These are the two largest economies in the world. China's growing and at some point is going to take over the US in terms of size. Like it's one thing to point to the IP as a development strategy, 100% fair. But I think this is as good a time as any to start to level the playing field. Like Chinese companies don't face a different set of rules from American companies for the most part with some national security concerns obviously, but operating in America, they don't face a different set of constraints or a different legal system than US companies do. But when Western companies go into China, that is exactly what happens. So to narrow it just down to IP, yes, I take your point on it entirely. Like that's one way of countries pulling themselves out of poverty. And I think, like you said, what has happened in terms of China eradicating poverty is nothing short of a miracle. It doesn't excuse this behavior. And in the context of international relations, I actually think this is the right time to apply the might is right and to level the playing field. Yeah, I think to your point, take something like TikTok, for example, just a, you know, a huge burgeoning sort of social network owned by the Chinese, obviously not constrained in any way to what it does in the US. That's a very different situation than to our point earlier, something like Facebook, which is obviously totally constrained in China. But again, I think there's a point here where this is why the debate, it's internal to the West as opposed to one between the US and China, because I think it's challenging to go to China and say, hey, this isn't fair. You should do this way. And from a Chinese perspective, they're like, why wouldn't they keep doing it this way? Why wouldn't they keep going on where they buy U.S. components, they get what they want, and they compete in the U.S. market with their products? Like, it's a great situation. Why wouldn't they want to keep it up? You know what I mean? I think to your point, if within the West, we believe that this is a intolerable state of affairs, that it needs to change. It is not going to change by having a debate with China about it. It's going to change by actually making moves and making China change whether they want to or not. Again, this is not a judgment call on either side. Everyone wants to think about what's the system here? Like try to put everything into context. What are the rules here? And within these rules, we can debate. And this is one of the things I think makes international relations so challenging, not just to execute, but to even talk about. Because at the end of the day, we're deciding, are we going to exert force to get what we want. Like that's really what's going on here on both sides. And if you think about it in the broader context, that's why it gets at neither side is quote unquote right or wrong. And using sort of that sort of language around this, again, we'll get into specifics I think that are right and wrong with both countries, but around just the general dynamic of international relations, it's a very amoral sort of thing. Yeah, I agreed. I think at this point in the conversation, it might actually be helpful to like dive into the way in which this is playing out between China and America. And I have to say that when the thought of America introducing tariffs 
on Chinese goods. I just didn't think anyone would be able to successfully pull it off. I think my assumption was that it would cause such damage to the US economy that they wouldn't dare do it. And Trump has just like very boldly, and I don't agree with a lot of what he's done, but he just pulled the trigger on this. And what amazed me has been like in terms of the relative impact, the relative impact in America, it's noticeable, but it's relatively small. The relative impact in China has been tremendous in terms of the damage this has done. Yeah. And I think there's an aspect where that damage is only starting. You know, when you talk about like how tariffs play out, it's like, oh, well, it's a tax on the U.S. consumer. And that's true. It is a tax on the U.S. consumer. I think, though, this is where sort of the relative impact sort of matters. The U.S. economy is internal to the U.S., right? Yes, there are inputs that matter coming from China, coming from Europe, all those sorts of things. But the U.S. is so large that the vast majority of economic activity is internal to the U.S. So even when you have this sort of tremendous impact on the edge, the way it filters through, I think, is less than it might be otherwise. And it also helps that the U.S. has been in this bull market for over a decade now, which smooths over a lot of sort of the pain that might come from this. Whereas China, I think the impact of exports and the impact of selling to the U.S. in particular, it's such a larger portion of the economy, like is the size of a body of water determines like how large the ripples are, right? Or like, I don't know, I'm not sure how, the, how this analogy works, but I think you're getting the point that I mean. Just the relative impact, I think, is larger there. And yes, I think it has had much more of an impact on China internally than it has on the U.S., which is certainly notable. And it's one of those things where, you know, <laughs> beware trusting experts like, for better or worse. We talk about unintended consequences. Unintended consequences are often a bad thing. They can be a good thing. Like we don't always know what's going to happen. And I think that there's some aspect of this here. And, you know, as far as the long term impact, like China and Chinese companies will always be aware now that the U.S. has basically a kill switch as far as they go, at least until they build up equivalent technology, which is going to take a long time. Like the U.S. lead is pretty significant. I think it's more significant than people think when they just think, oh, you know, China makes iPhones. They're they're super advanced. They're super advanced as far as the capability of production and manufacturing. But the actual high end and, and you think about this, like for China, if you had a choice to invest in super high-end, like huge capital costs sort of manufacturing versus relatively low capital costs, high marginal costs. The second one always made more sense because you had such a labor supply, right? It just made more sense to put your investment in those areas. And again, China has come up a lot in that area. Labor is much more expensive than it used to be. And they have the things that sort of Tim Cook talks about with Apple, the, you know, just all the talent and resources and people that understand like how to run a supply line and how industrial production and all. And they're so far ahead. They're really far ahead in this place. But that's a distinct area than the actual technology that is going into these products where the U.S. remains sort of sizably ahead. Yes. I think it's a really good point. Like the extent to which you just can't go back. Like once this is done, the trust is broken and now you're expecting it to happen. And once you get burnt, you don't want to get burnt. But Right. And that applies to the U.S. side or should apply to the U.S. side too as well. Believe me, I don't think the Chinese companies are going to forget this, right? It is now going to be front and center. And this is how, you know, the Chinese government is going to put all the money necessary to flip those incentives I talked about, where previously sort of the incentives, if you were a Chinese, you know, manufacturer would be more towards low capital costs, high labor costs sort of manufacturing. The way you fix that incentive structure is give them a whole bunch of money to do it the other way. (laughs) You know what I mean? And so there's going to be a lot of investment in this case. But 
at the same time, I think that any U.S. executive or any U.S. tech company that is praying that, oh, Trump will lose in 2020 and things will go back to normal, I think is just as foolhardy. Like, for one, it's been shown that the U.S. can actually exert pressure on China. The U.S. discovered it had a weapon that a lot of people didn't think that they had. That's one. There's still the aspect of, again, I hate to use unfair because we're talking about an amoral universe, but the fact remains that the fact that Chinese companies can compete in the U.S. and can buy U.S. components and it doesn't go the other way is perhaps not an optimal state of affairs in the long run from U.S. perspective. And three, the fact that Trump can pursue this policy and have it be a pretty popular policy, again, despite the fact that a lot of its harm is falling on sort of his base and that it doesn't matter, that means that it's going to be something that other people are going to go for. And I think you're going to see in this election, I'd be very surprised if the Democratic candidate attacks Trump on this particular issue. I would expect that the politics are largely in favor of this, that China is going to become a whipping boy sort of for both sides. And given that, any tech executive that just is praying that things go back to normal as they were for the last 20 years, I think is making a mistake. I think those three points, like extremely well made. This tactic, it's been so effective. The thing that it's caused me to get philosophical on is like, it's been effective with a view to what? And my initial free trade instincts were, okay, this is going to be a effective strategy to force China to the negotiating table to level the playing field for all the reasons that we talked about before. But I actually have started to think about whether this should be a strategy that we use in order to fundamentally decouple the two economies. And the reason why is like, okay, let's say like Facebook gets access to China or Google gets access to China. Like, are you comfortable with these tech companies operating in an environment where that technology gets used in a way that is not compatible with liberal democratic values? Like there is a city in Northern China with a Muslim population and China's had all kinds of issues with this city and they rack it up to terrorism. But the response has been to effectively create this city of surveillance and it's filled with re-education camps and they're watching people's cell phones and they have video cameras literally everywhere. Like, are we trying to win access for Western companies in order to operate in that environment? Are we comfortable with that? And I'm not sure we are. So on one hand, like we can use these tactics to level the trade playing field in a value-free environment where it's just literally, this is just about the dollars. But it caused me to start to question whether that's actually the end goal that we should be striving for and whether it's actually possible to engage with an economy like this that has a fundamentally different set of values. (laughs) I think that is the debate. When I talked about there is a intra-West or intra-US debate about this, I think you just drove right at the heart of it. And so first from a sort of tactical perspective, I think the big question is what is happening? Is this trade war about getting more favorable trading terms for the US or is it about fundamentally undoing this sort of deep integration that has happened. And again, it's happened more in technology than I think anywhere else. I mean, you take a company like Apple, for example, where it's pretty striking and it may turn out to be just a really fatal error that Apple made. You know, they talk about, we want to control all the technology that goes into our devices. They don't have control here. They are 
extremely dependent on China. Like, yes, they're building new iPhone factories in India and in Brazil. Those are mostly, I think, about avoiding sort of import controls. They can sell them for much cheaper if they're built there. But all the components and all the costs and all the sort of like it's still centered in China. And that's still the core of it. And they still rely on all that expertise that's been built up, you know, not just in China generally, but around Apple specifically over the last few decades. And Apple CEOs from Steve Jobs to Tim Cook have talked about we can't go somewhere else like we're here. The question then, does it mean, oh, we're going to stick with that? Like that's just the way it is. Or are we going to start pulling that apart as painful as it might be? And I think that is a big question here. Like there are people in the Trump administration that are around trade that have written and spoken about that they believe that these are two countries with fundamentally different values, fundamentally different approaches that cannot ultimately have a successful relationship that is this deeply integrated and need to be pulled apart. And that should make tech executives extremely nervous, at least in the short to medium term. I think the big question, though, is, you know, to your point, is that actually a better thing from a much longer term perspective? Yeah. I mean, in a funny kind of way, this isn't a new policy, right? Like the Trade Pacific Partnership, which was prominent under the Obama administration, like this was couched as a strategy to present a united front against China. And I, okay, I kind of get it. I think the messaging war for that was lost, particularly internationally, simply because so much of America's views on IP that we touched on earlier, the draconian, like this is how IP must be treated as sacrosanct, was included in this packaged up to be export to other countries. And that created a lot of resistance. But somehow when it is framed as these tariffs and rather than presenting like a more defensive united front, this is an aggressive move where actually because of the way the technology will be used and like how it's fundamentally incompatible from a values perspective, somehow that just clicked with me more. And you're right. Like I'm in the tech industry. I love tech. And again, like a kind of foreshadowed this at the start, like there's a part of me that believes that there's commonality among all humanity and this desire to be connected. Like part of that narrative is why I'm here, but you see the way that the technology gets applied in a very different value system, simply because like you said, the technology is value free. And my instinct given this way into the argument is actually, I'm not sure that we can have that kind of relationship over the long term. Yeah, I mean, the TPP thing was such an own goal by because the U.S. is the one that killed it. And, and you're right. I think there was a messaging problem generally. Like it was about China. You know, it was about containing China. It was a defensive measure, whereas these are offensive measures, I think is a great way to put it. But as far as the sort of broader values, I mentioned that's the big debate sort of within the West. I think the debate within technology itself is this. And as you noted, you mentioned earlier in the podcast, so I think it's worth dwelling on this a little bit is what is technology about? We decide what it's about. Is it about connecting people? Is it about making everyone together? Is it about communications? All things which are great and wonderful and which we have benefited from tremendously on a personal level. And I think that has always been a guiding light for tech. And, and you know, the thing worth noting is, you know, tech has always had a bit of a utopian streak and that can go too far where we've criticized Mark Zuckerberg, which by the way, you just said something about being connected and all that sort of stuff that sounded a lot like Zuckerberg, I would just note. And, you know, in a, we sort of rang the alarm a couple of years ago saying one person does not get to decide utopia. One person does not get to define where it goes. That's a very dangerous place to go. And another dangerous place to be is to think that utopia is even possible in the first place. Like we are humans and you think about what do we start out with? What do we sort of give caution to? We started out with the acknowledgement that I'm an American and you are an Australian. And we were talking about this sort of 
conflict of values between two different countries and two different cultures, one of which we are not represented here. And that's just the reality of the matter. And that aspect of humanity, the sort of tribalistic nature, the fact that this is my team and you're on the other team. And we're seeing that again and again on a more narrow level. We see that within countries, but I think that's something inherent to this as well. And I think something that tech has done a very poor job of grappling with. If you go back to all the problems with like YouTube or Facebook, so many of them are about, you know, I call it the sort of Pollyannish assumption where you know they assume that most people are good and some people are bad. I think there's another angle to it, which is so much of technology did not take into account the tribalistic nature of humanity in its design and development. And that kind of ties in here. At the end of the day, the US and China are different countries and they are the largest countries. And there is a sort of inherent conflict in that. And for tech to pretend, oh, can't we just all be together so we keep making our stuff in China and they're really good at it and we can sell it back here and go back and forth? Can we just go back to a happy world? I think is not based in reality. I do want to kind of highlight, I think you and I just made slightly different points that are worth sort of separating. I think there's just three questions here or three points to make. Point number one is that we're dealing with two different countries and there's a sort of inherent conflict that's inevitable. And for technology to be ignorant of that or pretend that it can paper over those fundamental differences is a great way to make poor decisions. That's point number one. Point number two, and you brought this up, so I'm sort of reflecting your point, is to what extent does the U.S., want to be involved with the way China is applying technology. You mentioned what is happening in Xinjiang and the surveillance that's going on and the fact that people are in re-education camps, concentration, whatever you want. Like, it's happening. We said never again. People are going into these camps. People are disappearing. This is what's happening. And how does the U.S. feel about that? How does the U.S. feel about their component manufacturers going into the companies that are building all of this? There is a moral question here, but that moral question is less about looking at China and trying to tell them what to do. And it's looking at ourselves. Is that what we want to do? You go back to the Great Firewall. That Great Firewall was built on Cisco technology. Was Cisco made a whole lot of money that being built? Was that worth it? Was that a good thing? If you think it was a systematic perspective, were the short-term profits that Cisco gained from building that worth foregoing all the profits that other U.S. companies gave up by being blocked by China? I mean, like there's layers to all this sort of stuff. So that's sort of point number two. And then, you know, point number three is how does the U.S. respond to this? And I think an important point to make here is that we're not saying that the U.S. is all good and China is all bad. Like you made the point around international relations. And this is where I get disappointed. Like one of the things as a foreigner that I always admired about America was like there was an adherence to principles, but it's not always the case that it follows through. Like it will get quote unquote pragmatic around some of this stuff more often than I would like. Like you think about uh, like the Snowden revelations and the spying on citizens, like the spying of all the communication, the hoovering up of all that information like abandoning that principle makes it harder to have this argument. Uh, you think about what the NSA did, like there was a contract with Boeing and Airbus, or actually I think it was McDonnell Douglas at the time, where the NSA threw some of this hoovering up, like released information that was favorable to McDonnell Douglas. The American company won the contract. Like this is the kind of thing where I wish it was much more around principles. Like it would be a much easier story to tell if it was like one side's good and the other side's bad. The reality is that is not the case. 
Yeah. And to be clear, the U.S. has never been principled. The U.S. has been very good at espousing principles and at least in theory, moving very slowly and with much kicking of teeth and yelling towards them. I mean, this is a country founded on the principle that all men are created equal, even while the people writing it and signing it had slaves. So let's 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 be again. This is why I think it's important to establish at some point to come out and say we're right and you're wrong is it's a great way to get very much into the weeds of actually, no, there's a lot of stuff that we do that's wrong as well. So I think that there's two ways to approach this. Number one is, yes, the U.S. had internment camps for the Japanese World War II, just to bring up an objection. There has never been anything to the scale of what's happening in Xinjiang. Like that, what would be say, then you come back, well, what about, you know, what happened to Native Americans, for example? What happened to slavery? And you could go back and forth with this forever. I feel the same way about you as far as morally speaking about, for example, what's happening in Xinjiang or just the general censorship and control of what Chinese people see. Or the fact that, you know, people in China, the censorship, we're coming up on June 4th. They don't know what happened there. Like all problems. And then, and yes, you can come back with debate. Oh, what what about the stuff that the U.S. has suppressed or what about what the U.S. did to Native Americans or, or what the U.S. has done to minorities and particularly to African-Americans? We can go back and forth on this. And so I, I acknowledge I'm putting this as an American. I'm coming at this with my point of view. I do think we're hopefully progressing in halting manner, three steps forward, two steps back towards a better place. But even then, if you back up, that's why it's useful to remember there is a pragmatic view of this that is just – if we're doing analysis of technology companies and what they're doing at some point, you have to choose, like you have to choose like sort of what side are you on? And I think this desire to sort of, we can keep sort of balancing the two of them is not going to be a sustainable one. I guess this does beg the question, broad response, like what should the U S response be here? Like what is the right way to approach this? Well, this is where I do think your points about where the U.S. has not lived up to its ideals is important because the other aspect of international relations is getting people to go along with you. And you know when the U.S. makes these points, makes these points about surveillance, makes these points about spying, makes these points about espionage, like all these sorts of things, anyone that is sort of on the fence or on one side or the other is going to come back with a litany of where the U.S. sort of failed to live up to its ideals. And that's why the might make right is not the ultimate sort of way to approach this, because at some point there's going to be some number of countries or folks or people that you need to get on your side and you need to convince them to get on your side, not force them to get on your side because you don't have the energy and the resources to fight multiple fronts. And so, for example, you mentioned the Snowden revelations. It's a great example. What a terribly unproductive thing that was. And it's only getting worse over time because you see that a lot. You saw people out there saying, oh, do you think China's bad? Look what the U.S. did, the relations, which is to compare, I think those things is ridiculous. But then you're getting into the nitty gritty of fine tooth comb of, well, they actually only did this. And it was, you know, their folks on internationalism, there was a court and like you might be technically right, but you've lost the argument because you're in the weeds. Headlines matter here. You know what I mean? I think that's a great example. I think this should give a lot of pause to people that really want more centralized control and more sort of limitation of speech on these platforms. That's not to say I'm pro abuse by any means. It's not to say I'm not worried about fake news. It's not to say I'm not worried about misinformation. All of those are real things, but those go along with openness. It goes with opportunity. It goes along with the ability to do whatever you want for better or worse. And it's so easy to see the worse 
and to think about the worst and say, we got to tamp that down. But the better is just as important. You want to compete with China in the long term. You talk about China spending all this money, having the centralized approach. You know, we need a chip industry, all these, like these sorts of things. The approach to that is not to compete on the same terms. It's, I think, to go in the opposite direction. And to me, this was getting at the end. When I got at the end talking about the different ideas of tech, censorship versus openness, control versus creativity, centralization versus competition. I was not saying the U.S. is the angel here and China is the devil. I'm saying these are fundamental questions and both companies can fall down on either side. There's arguments you can make that China actually has more competition in some aspects than the U.S. does. On the other hand, they very much focus on huge centralization as far as like social networking because it's easier to control, right? Control versus creativity. The creativity, the lack of regulations around creating new products in China is there's a lot more latitude than there is in many cases in the U.S. So that's not a case where necessarily the U.S. is better than China. The censorship versus openness, I certainly think that is a big area where the U.S. is sort of clearly differentiated. But the point of listing these values, of listing these fundamental debates is not to say the U.S. is one and China is the other. It's to say these are critical debates and not only do they matter when we think about our approach to China and think about what values are at stake? They ought to inform the way we think about our own industry, the way we think about that, because it's not just the context of what happens in the U.S. This is in a global context and the next sort of few decades of technology. I 100% agree with this, like framing it in terms of values and principles. And when you're under attack, sometimes the temptation is to compromise on this. Like I, I think back to 9-11 and the tragedy that was and the response being the Patriot Act. It's almost like you're compromising the principles the wrong way. And like there was an example of someone, well, a company recently looking at the way this is all played out and trying to use this for their own ends. And it made me so frustrated, which was Facebook. And they're like, oh, look at all these big Chinese tech companies, social media companies, like no one's going to break them up. And therefore we shouldn't get broken up so we can compete. And it's like, guys, like, hey, like the fact that you're using China as a blueprint for regulating the internet, that's your argument blows my mind. But B, it's like the liberal democratic approach to this with a capitalist market is to create an environment where there's lots of competition. It's not to say, oh, there's a threat, we should do it their way. It's like you want competition and like the nature of a competitive market is the thing that created so much wealth in the West and put it in the position that it's in. And when faced with a threat or faced with someone else doing it differently, I don't think the right approach is like the quote unquote pragmatic thing of just copying. The right approach is to go back to these values and say the values is what separates us and so much of what separates us springs out of those values and those are the things that we should focus on. Now, that's the level of the debate. I guess it is you can't talk about values without frustration that the person leading the US right now seems to be values free and like that just muddies the whole debate. It does, but we are now in safe waters criticizing Facebook. I love it. Let's keep going. No, I. Uh, it is... Zuckerberg first floated this line in his congressional testimony last year. I kind of noted it in passing and mentioned, yeah, come on, give me a break. Then Sandberg came out this week with this much more explicit call. I agree. First off, how shameless to be sort of like surfing on this current sentiment. I mean, it's so blatant. I mean, it's ridiculous. But yeah, number two, to your point, the idea that the Chinese regulatory regime, the Internet, provides anything that we ought to think about is like, well, you can step back. 
Like you can step back and say, well, actually, I really do value stability. I really hate fake news. I do dislike misinformation. Guess what? The fact that Tiananmen Square didn't happen is fake news. The fact that protests are put down or explosions happen and no one knows why it's completely wiped off or some official is convicted of corruption and goes on the memory or whatever the phrase is, that's misinformation too. The question is, do you want it happening on a chaotic sort of widespread basis that, oh, by the way, also allows for great things to bloom, great things to come forth? Or do you want it happening on a centralized basis where someone gets to decide what is truth and what is not truth? Again, not only only would I push back against that generally. But two, I think this needs to give people that want more control, that want Facebook to do more, that implicit in their demands for a sort of maximalist view of privacy, for example, or in their hatred of fake news or misinformation. The only way you accomplish those things, I wrote about this last year, the question when it comes to privacy, if you want what all these people claim they want, you're asking for massively centralized companies because that's the only way to function on a pragmatic basis. And are we sure that's what we want? There are trade-offs. There are very hard trade-offs that are going to be made. We've talked a lot about the trade-off between like regulation and privacy and competition. Like That's only the tip of the iceberg of the questions we need to ask. And I've always fallen more on the line of we want more competition. We want more openness. We want to be careless with things. Honestly, for me, you talked about how this conversation crystallized for you the question of sort of values vis-a-vis China. For me, it has crystallized my conviction that actually we need to push even further in this direction. It's not just a matter of this is what we think is right. I think if you actually want to have a competitive economy in the long run, leaning into the opposite is the exact way to go. Once we're at the same technological level, where is the next innovation going to come from? Is it going to come from one with a sort of chaotic atmosphere where good stuff and bad stuff bubbles up all the time and we sort of deal with it and muddle through? Or is it going to come from a top-down, centralized, we decide what's right or wrong atmosphere? There's plenty of historical evidence that it's the former that's going to win. And so much of the discourse around U.S. and tech generally is so focused on the bad stuff that we're in danger of constricting what generated the exact sort of advantages that give us leverage in this trade war in the first place. Yeah, I am 100% agree with everything you just said. I mean, another way into this is like, I don't want to live in China. And it's not because I don't like Chinese people. I love Chinese people. I have many Chinese friends. I have Chinese family members. I just, those principles are not a world in which I want to live. Like I'm here and I love these principles and I wish we'd stick more to them. And it scares me that the number two in one of the most powerful companies in the world is using China as the basis of an argument for more centralized controls for all the reason you just said. And that's why this conversation we've said all along, is it's hard because you really are getting into this mix of values combined with tribalism, like my team versus the other team. And it gets really hard to start to pick that stuff apart, but it can also be really clarifying. You know, I mean, it's easy and tempting, particularly someone, you know, with what we do and what I do at Shachekri to always want to float on the top and just sort of sit and point out, you know, well, this is what's happening here. This is what's going there. And there's an aspect of this you can analyze. You can talk about well, what's going to be the impact on Huawei. What's, you know, we did at the beginning, you know, like the international market versus Chinese market and the, well, how does Android work and that sort of thing. But whatever you feel about what is happening now. The truth is it cuts very quickly to much more fundamental issues. And again, we can debate tactics. Like, are we pursuing the best tactics? I'm not sure. Do I trust the current leadership to execute on this? I can't say that I do. Just to be 
perfectly honest. At the same time, I also thought that, you know, to your point about who would tariffs hurt more, well, the experts haven't been particularly right about that. There's a lot of discomfort and stuff going on here, but I, I do feel the entire thing is very clarifying. Yeah. Yeah. We're both like hardcore free traders. I think the idea that free trade is better, the idea of comparative advantage, the principles that I write about in strategy generally are manifested most clearly through free trade. Generally speaking, the idea that some countries do something, some countries do the other, they trade and you maximize the output. Like that's pretty core to, I think, both of our political philosophy. 100%. And like, I find what Trump is doing to be completely the wrong approach, like the way he's using tariffs against other countries and particularly allies, like it makes no sense in the context of this values debate that we just had. And it's hard to pass. Like, is it really because like he's just out to get a better deal for everyone? Is he treating the Chinese one differently because of the values? It's hard. I, 100%. I mean, I guess- And it's all complicated because there's a lot of things that Trump stands for that a lot of people in technology in particular are, they think that's not my values. Those aren't my values. And they're like, there's layers of values. You know what I mean? And that also makes it a hard conversation to have. Yeah. Like if Trump supports it, therefore I don't. It's like, well, guys, hang on. Like that's not helpful. Maybe there is actually something here. Here's the thing though, Ben, like we've mentioned a number of times, this is a difficult conversation and I agree with you. And I felt it in the way that the conversation has unfolded. Like this has been more challenging for me to talk about than any topic for a very long time. And you, you feel it in the flow of the conversation, but here's the thing. I'm maybe reticent to step forward because like this is difficult. And because there's a part of me that's worried about offending people, but I'm not second guessing whether I'm able to say it. And like, that is something that I think is fundamental to the success of the West. And that's the different, like that's where these values come in and where the rubber hits the road. It's a phenomenal point. I think that's exactly right. The fact that we can have this conversation and our only fear is that people will have more conversation criticizing us and our fear is not government interference. It's as fundamental a difference as you can get. And I will absolutely put myself on the side of I can say what I want. And so can our critics. Yes, totally. Very good. Well, we made it through. The truth is we had to rest up last week so we could power through this conversation this week. So it was good, good planning on my part. <laughs> I, like, I feel a little sweaty after this one. It wasn't easy. It wasn't. Well, it's was good talking to you. We will probably talk next week. We are getting into summer where schedules are, are going to get a little crazy. I am actually making my usual pilgrimage back to the U.S. next week. So I think we'll record, but it's not for certain. So subscribe to the RSS feed and you will get the podcast when it comes and we will do our best. Sounds good. Well, uh, if you are on the road, safe travels. But otherwise, I'm sure if not next week, I will speak to you soon. Sounds good. I'll talk to you later. Have a good one. Bye-bye.